Hello and welcome to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute that focuses on religion and society. Other podcasts are available, but we'd prefer you to listen to this one. I'm David Perry and we're breaking from our usual format today because we've got just one guest, or victim, Wolf founder-director Ed Kessler. Ed, welcome. I'll be asking some slightly uncomfortable questions. What difference can a polite interfaith institute make in the age of Trump and Putin? Are interfaith folk just preaching to the converted? But Ed, if I may quote Bob Dylan, how did this all get started? Well, it's quite interesting being on the other side of the microphone, David, I have to say. I'd like to tell you that it was a well-organised plan, and I knew that we'd be sitting here 20 years later. It was, of course, nothing of the sort. I just thought at the time, with a friend, Martin Forward, who's a Methodist minister, that wasn't it about time we set up a centre that studied relations between Christians and Jews within the university environment. Was there a sort of breakthrough moment? You, you were doing your PhD, I think. I was, was doing there, was my there PhD. Was there a breakthrough moment where you thought that this was necessary? I think I realised that as good as relations were on the ground between Christians and Jews, it wasn't based in the academy, it wasn't based on research, it was based on goodwill. And I know that goodwill can change very quickly. For someone who's got no idea what the Wolf Institute does or what it stands for, could you give us a sort of broad outline of its purpose or mission? It's based on a very simple premise that you understand yourself better in relationship with somebody else. Now, if that's the case, then I need to know about you because by knowing about you, I learn about me. It sounds very simple. It's not easy to achieve. And we achieve it through teaching, through outreach, through research and through policy. All the way through... It's simply about trying to understand the other. You do all this variety of stuff. Does that make you distinct from other interfaith groups that are around the place? I'm often criticised, I'm pleased to say, by interfaith activists who would rather we don't worry about that academic stuff and we just get on with changing the street now. And some of my academic colleagues are saying, why are you worried about what's going on the street, in the communities? Let's just pursue research, because that's our goal. And what the Wolf Institute tries to do is to sit in an uncomfortable place that pursues both academic research to make society a better place. For a number of years, you, you were sort of camping around Cambridge in various obscure buildings, weren't you? And then you got the funding for this new building... Essentially, we were based for the first 13 or 14 years at Wesley House on Jesus Lane, and we rented rooms there, and we expanded. Um, And then we moved from the Low Church to Margaret Beaufort Institute on Grange Road before having this opportunity of purchasing our own land here in the centre of Cambridge at Westminster College. And we moved in last year. But it still feels a bit surreal to come into your own building when we've roamed for nearly 20 years. I'll be honest, it's, it's a dream come true. Fundraising for the new building must, must have been quite a... What's so interesting on the funding side, I'm often asked about this, when it's faith-based money, not the academic grants or public sector grants, but when it's faith-based money, with the running of the Institute, it was 50% Jewish, 40% Christian, and maybe 10% Muslim. When it came to the building, which was a big project, I mean, it was a £9 million project, 50% of the money came from the Muslim community and 25 from the Jewish and 25 from the Christian. So it's, it's genuinely cross-faith uh, sponsored. And one of the things you were very keen on and have achieved is, is this quiet room. 
Tell us a bit about that. Uh, I personally spend a bit of time popping into multi-faith chapels at airports, at shopping centres, in hospitals, and I can tell you for the most part they are pretty horrible rooms at the back of beyond. Our quiet space is in the lower ground floor, but you see you have a ceiling light, you have natural light coming in. There have been a number of moments I've used it personally for periods of reflection or seen people use it for prayer. And also some of our sort of eminent visitors, including royalty, have spent a few minutes in silence there. It's a beautiful space. What strikes me about the Wolf Institute is is the sort of variety of projects you have going at any one time. You, You have very sort of hard-nosed, social, data-driven projects, and you have quite highfalutin PhD-type subjects. Could you tell us a bit about how that works? Essentially, the Wolf Institute tries to combine academic research with a practical impact. So every project we have, every educational initiative, has to be based on solid academic work, but it has to make a difference. There has to be some spin-off that's actually useful. So our Director of Research, who we've had on our podcast before on many occasions, uh, Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, is doing pre-modern uh, studies in the Mediterranean basin of relations between Jews, Christians and Muslims. And you might say, who cares? What's so interesting about her work is that she can apply that and she basically argues that if you understand the business contractual relationship in this period, you understand the encounter between these different faith traditions. It's a simple premise, but it works. So whether we study pre-modern or biblical or contemporary, everything has to have some practical benefit, but it must be based on academic research. Otherwise, I would say, what's the point? It must be quite difficult for you politically using the political with a small p. You must be feel sometimes buffeted between the different faith groups and having to take care of how you present yourself and what you say and so on. Well, if you're attacked by both the Christian leaders, the Muslim leaders and the Jewish leaders, you could probably guess you're getting it right. And there have been times when I have received some criticism for statements or initiatives the Institute's made, but that is part and parcel of our work. And actually, one of the dangers of the whole interfaith scene is everybody works just to simply get along, just to share commonality, just to discuss what they have in in common. Actually, it's my fundamental belief that we've got to deal with difference. And that means lifting your head above the parapet and accepting what follows. Coming to the wolf as a someone who's a non-believer. One of the things that attracted me about it is that it's not what I would rather crudely call a happy, clappy place. I mean, your engagement with religion and belief is at a very serious and interesting level. I don't think you can take, whether you're religious or not, you have to take religion seriously. There used to be in the 60s and 70s what was called the secularisation thesis, that as we were progressing, everything was becoming more secular, and eventually those religious crazy people would be you know, stuck on some island somewhere. Actually, that's not the case. 88.5% of the world identify themselves as religious. You, David, are a minority, yet you like to think you're a majority. Now... If we are all minorities, which is my personal argument, whether we're Jew, Christian or Muslim, whether religious or non-religious in a pluralist society as this country is, we're all minorities. We're having to come to terms with that. But what we do have to do is get to know and understand somebody else. And we have to take religion seriously. So regardless of the extent of your religiosity, you as a secular person would surely say that religion has a place, wouldn't you? I certainly would. And I'd also observe that I don't think there's been a civilization 
a society that hasn't developed a religion. That always strikes me as extremely interesting. Well, I think part of the human condition is to search for some kind of profound meaning, and some people seek that meaning through a higher authority. And personally, I feel more comfortable thinking that there is some divine purpose to this world than it's just a random collection of atoms. People talk very loosely about um, spirituality, people who aren't believers, maybe. Does that annoy you, or do you you think it's something to be aware of? I think one's got to be careful being sloppy with words, and spirituality is one of those words that's used for a myriad of different reasons. Religious people will feel spiritual. Some of the greatest uh, hymns are spiritual anthems today. So it's, it's more about being careful with words. And I suppose part of the work of the Institute is about being nuanced. Is Actually, I say to my students at the beginning of the year, I hope you leave the Wolf Institute more confused than you come in. Well, that's a good uh, point at which to take a break and have a slurp of water. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back shortly. You're listening to a podcast from the Wolf Institute. Have an idea for an episode? Got a question you want to ask Ed or another panel member? Email us at encounterpodcast at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm David Perry, and our guest on the podcast this time is Ed Kessler, founder director of the Wolf Institute. And we're talking about the history of the Wolf Institute because it's coming up to 20 years since its foundation. You don't look a day older, <laughs> I must say. I, I wanted to test test you with some slightly more, you know, existential points. This is a sort of very polite interfaith institute based in Cambridge. In the age of Trump and Putin and Erdogan and so on, do you sometimes at night have angst about what difference can I make? I do have angst about what difference the institute makes. I would disagree that we're a polite institution. Uh, We're an institution that engages in difference, and that can be quite difficult. Um, But there's the question, what difference do we make? And that's what what keeps me awake at night, or makes me wake up. You know, do my students and the graduates and the staff here really make a difference? And I genuinely believe that we do. I don't want to say that we have changed the world, but I think we have made a difference in people's lives and I have evidence of that when they go out in the communities and they write back about something that's happened or they stood up in support of somebody who was facing some kind of um, uh, criticism, unfair criticism because of their colour, because of their religion, because of their gender and they did that because of what they learnt here. One example, we brought together Christian aid, World Jewish Relief and Islamic Relief to meet for the first time, it's ridiculous that it would have been the first time, but they met to talk about how do you deliver aid in a country where the majority is a different faith? How do Christian aid work in a Muslim country? How do World Jewish Relief work in Pakistan? And so on. And what we found and what we helped them do is to realize they don't need to be nervous about this because they can actually reach out to faith communities more effectively than secular organizations. They were more effective in the delivery of aid in places like Pakistan, in places like South Sudan, because they were faith-based organisations. And that came about as a result of meeting hosted by the Wolf Institute. So that's something that we do, that by simply facilitating this meeting, it made an organisational difference. Essentially what they did was they read each other's manuals. 
right? I would say if, if this is something that you were going to take into uh, another faith community, let me help you translate what you're saying in a way that's not going to be offensive to that faith community. Don't put crosses all over your documentation, for example. They help translate their work. But more importantly, I think they realize that they have can have an impact way beyond their own faith community. Another more specific individual example is a priest who stood up to racists within his own community and said, you know, what you've said is Islamophobic and this is why it's Islamophobic. And one person had the courage to do that from a pulpit. And that priest studied at the Wolf Institute, learnt about other faiths, other religions, and had the confidence to stand up and be heard. And of course, there was his parish or there was his congregation listening to him. That's the sort of difference that this place can make and does make through its programmes and students. In any case, I mean, um, we can all worry about what difference we make because our powers are limited, obviously. But it shouldn't stop us from trying, should it? No, I, I left the family business to do a PhD in Cambridge and it caused a great deal of angst personally in the family and it was because I thought this place could make a difference rather than on my gravestone having wished he was at the office longer I wanted to have something different and and that's a sort of personal small personal uh, motivation. There's a question sort of connected to that one which is um, is there a danger that the sort of people who engage with interfaith activity and dialogue, however you want to define it, are already sort of in agreement with each other. Yes, this are you preaching to the converted? Exactly. I was going to say exactly the same thing. This is a criticism that all you do is bring people together who already agree with one another. And that is where the commonality, you know, that's the point. If you just stick with commonality, you just stick with agreement, then you will never deal with the nitty gritty issues of the relationship between religion and society. You have to deal with difficult issues. You have to bring people together who disagree with one another. You may not go public on it. We may simply be able to provide a safe space, as we have in years past, where people actually sit together. So I've had Israelis and I've had Palestinians sit in my office talking to one another very openly, very honestly. They wouldn't do that in public. We can provide that space. I've had students, or we've had students. One year we had a student in Gaza, in Jerusalem, and in Amman take a course on Muslim-Jewish relations. They will never meet one another. They live within 100 miles of one another. They will never physically meet, but they met virtually through courses on the Wolf Institute, and they dealt with difficult issues. Well, you, you've, you've mentioned that's very... Um you know, obvious problem of, of the Middle East. Do you, do you find you've engaged with both sides? You have trust from both communities? Surprisingly enough, I've experienced goodwill pretty much everywhere I've gone. I've never felt threatened or intimidated in that part of the world. I think that that's because there's a desperation to talk. I mean, there are hardliners who simply want to win, and for the other to lose. But most people want to get on with their lives. Most people want to live one alongside the other. So how do you do that? Now, it's very easy for me, living 3,000 miles away in this lovely ivory tower of Cambridge, to tell people how to live their lives. But if we can create the space and the conditions that enable these people to talk to one another, then yes, we're making a contribution, and yes, it should be done. Perhaps it's like sort of 
putting a seed in a pot and getting it to establish itself and then you take it back and put it in the earth and it's it's a bit like that it's a bit like that but you do it with a bit of love and a bit of faith and a bit of hope in the future and that's where the sort of as a person of faith that's one of my motivations that I think it can make a difference and I think it's almost a divine imperative to do this because we have to work out how to live one alongside the other and it's it, it, it it's vital it's probably the most important challenge after the environment of our age looking forward 20 years where would you hope the wolf institute would be oh, i've just got through 20 years david i'm not sure if i can uh, i'm not sure if i'll still be here as the director of the wolf institute in 20 years time because when you create something it's got to be able to stand on its own two feet in terms of um what difference we might make in 20 years' time. I'll give you an example. I would like to see every minister of religion, of what, and by that's a technical term of anybody of faith who's a faith leader, to become a faith leader, you have to learn something about other religions. It's not just an optional extra, an elective course. It's a compulsory course. If we can achieve that in the training of faith leaders, we would have really achieved something. I would like to see some kind of, if you like, national conversation in this country that identifies almost like another new settlement, uh, a kind of Magna Carta, whereby we are have a certain rules of conduct, whether we're religious or not religious, or whatever faith, whatever faith we are, that we all adhere to. I'd love that to happen in the next 20 years. Most of all, I'd like people to take religion seriously, not that it is the, the, the cause of all problems or it's the, the solution of all problems, but it is both the solution and the cause of many of our problems. And if we can begin to nuance it in such a way, then yes, in the next 20 years, we would have achieved something. And let's look forward finally to the Middle East, Israel, Palestine. Would you, would you hazard a prophecy as to how that might look I, in the same time frame? I am no prophet, and I offer no prophecy, but I will share a story with you that epitomizes my view of the situation because it's incredibly depressing at the moment. Just recently, I met with Prince Hassan of Jordan. I've never known him so depressed, and I told him this story. There were three people who met every afternoon in Jerusalem. And they decided, because of the terrible situation, the increasing mess of relations, the wars, that they were three pessimists. And one day, one of them turned around to the other two and said, you know what, I've converted. I said, what do you mean, you've converted? He said, I've become an optimist. I said, how can you be an optimist in all these terrible things that are going on? And he said, well, we're old friends. You just have to accept me now for who I am. I'm now an optimist. And of course, as old friends, they do. And a few minutes later, one of them looks at this newly converted optimist and says, why are you looking so worried? You've got wrinkles, you've got frowns. Why are you so worried if you're an optimist? And he said, you think it's easy to be an optimist? That's where I personally stand, that it actually is a pretty grim situation out there. In fact, in many ways, I've never been more pessimistic about the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, argument, conflict. There do not seem to be many ways forward. But how else can I be? other than an optimist. And that's the grounds upon which this institute was founded. And to be honest, that's the grounds upon which eventually there will be peace between Israel and Palestine. Well, I think that's a very good way to end my thanks, Ed. You'll be back in this chair next time. I look forward to it. When we'll be talking about religion and disability. And 
to some, those troubling um, get-off-your-bed-and-walk miracles that we have in the New Testament. Thank you very much. Thank you.